Today we're going to start a brand new series entitled The Gospel According to Luke. If you're unfamiliar with the New Testament, the New Testament begins with Matthew, then Mark, Luke, and John. And these four books that we call them make up what we call the Gospels. And so we're going to take a deep dive into the third one, the Gospel According to Luke. And let me start with chapter 1, verse 1, and tell you what we're doing, why we're doing it, and how we're going to journey together in this series. Chapter 1, verse 1. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed." Now, just in that opening line, there's so much to unpack. Many have undertaken to write an orderly account. Does that mean that there's more than just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Quick answer, yes. There's a lot more written accounts that we have on record. Um, It was handed down, which means that there's this tradition. Was that orally? Was that written? How, How does that work out? Eyewitnesses and servants of the word, there's huge implications to unpack there. This isn't just some sort of fanciful writing. There were eyewitnesses. So Luke is writing a historical, a testimonial account. Who is Theophilus? What does his name mean? Does it mean anything significant or important? How should that be interpreted? The certainty of the things. I mean, there's just so much to unpack in this very opening. What I'd like to do is just step back a little bit and give us a little bit of an approach, a perspective that I hope will be transformative for even how we dig in in the first place. But before we do that, I want to acknowledge we're still in a pandemic. We're still fighting a crisis. Uh, We're still in shelter in place. We're still fighting for racial justice. There's so much going on in our culture. The Supreme Court handed down two really significant decisions. That's elating some, discouraging, frustrating others, continuing the fissures and the fractures that we are experiencing uh, in our nation, the continued polarization. There's political upheaval. I'm still thinking about climate change, that even in the midst of all the things that we are attending to, we still need to attend to how do we care for our planet? How do we care for this one environment that we inhabit, this creation that God has given us? And how are we going to continually work to switch over our energy system? There's all these things that are happening. And uh, I, I get this sense as I watch other churches and I try to pay attention to how churches manifest their ministries online and, and in this world, that a lot of churches will say, yes, these are significant issues, but we really just need to focus in on Jesus or we need to focus in on our study or on our faith. And I, get, I think I get what they're saying, but there seems to be this separation that there, yes, there is this thing, but we're going to keep our eyes on heaven. But And it's, it's almost uh, as if the things that we're dealing with don't um, matter in the, in the sense of that shouldn't be our attention. Um, but what I, I like to say, and, and I, please forgive me if I'm misinterpreting, and that may be my own background, uh, that may be my, my own biases being you know, applied to how I think about church and religion and American religion, etc. But what I'd like to say for us, for me, the attention to faith and the attention to specifically Jesus um, is really for moments like this. The way of Jesus is made for moments just like this. And I think it's important to state that uh, studying Jesus for us 
and following after this particular way is because we're living in times like this. When you want to think about pandemics or racism, ethnocentrism, uh, hypocritical religion, corrupt politics, and rampant immorality, uh, economic injustices and disparities, you want to talk about any of those things that we're fighting today, they had all of those things back then. And throughout history, what we see is that the Jesus movement was most effective. The Jesus movement was most powerful. And the Jesus movement uh, was most influential during those specific times. I, I believe Jesus says, maybe somewhere in the gospel, maybe according to Luke, it is not the sick who need a doctor. Sorry, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I've, I've come to dig into these moments that are challenging uh, social unrest, uncertainty about the future, rampant immorality and disparity and marginalization. So all of these things are deeply significant to the Jesus movement. All of these things form the context for how Jesus emerged. And this is our moment as well as followers of Jesus. So when we face things like this, it's really critical to understand that we've been doing this for a long time. And this is when the Jesus movement becomes that much more effective and important and critical. And to that moment, I'd like to say, knock, knock. You probably weren't prepared for that. So let, let's try again. Knock, knock. You say, who's there? To, to who? I think you meant to say to whom. <laughs> this is when I really need to be in the same room. I can't tell if you're laughing or not laughing or whatever. Let's try another one. Um, what did the left eye say to the right eye? This is a kindergarten one. Between you and me, something smells. Um, there's this whole other genre called the anti-joke uh, that I've kind of thought was really awesome and fun. Uh, what did one Frenchman say to the other Frenchman? I don't know. I don't speak French. Like me saying that. Okay. That's for you, Lucas, by the way. What's blue and smells like red paint? Blue paint. <laughs> now, wait a second. Before you want to turn off the stream, which I recognize you might want to do, you might be feeling a little discombobulation, a little discomfort, or maybe being jarred, confusion. You might even be feeling a little bit angry and upset. Um, why, why, is, why are you wasting my time? What is that all about? Whatever you're feeling or whatever you can imagine yourself feeling, I want you to hold on to that. I want you to think about that and consider that. Because what I'd like to do is talk about genre. Now, genre is a literary style. It's got certain characteristics, whether that's fantasy, mystery, sci-fi, um, you know, nonfiction, business. There's all sorts of different genres of writing. You know this automatically, and we have several authors uh, in our church, which is so wonderful. Go Kelly, go Lindsay, we, uh, that know deeply about genre and have to think about genre. If I were to say it's a dark and stormy night a long time ago and a galaxy far, far away uh, digs you into a story, and of course we know that genre as being uh, science fiction, fantasy. Um, but if I were to say to you, you know what's odd? Every other number, that's going to be a joke. And if I were to start reading portions of the Supreme Court decisions that were that came down this week, you would know that I was in legislation or statutory law, uh, judicial genres. Genres have 
type, they have purpose, they have characteristics, there's certain modes and styles that every genre has. But what I'd like to share with you, and this most of us know about genre, like when we go to a library and we want to pick up a certain kind of book. But what I'd like to share with you that's really critical for our study of the gospel according to Luke is that genre is actually more critical and more important than we think. Genre, according to some literary theorists, they would suggest that genre is not just a type of writing. The deeper level is that a genre is actually an agreement, a relationship between the author and the reader, a way of coming into a shared understanding of what we're going to experience together. When I go into the bookstore and I'm looking around for a book, uh, I am automatically entering into a certain kind of an agreement. I'm looking for a kind of literature. If I'm going in looking for a cookbook, I, I know I want to go to that particular section. And so bookstores label those sections because they are in agreement with me. They're in a relationship with me. They want to come with me on the journey of discovering what it is that I want to discover, what it is that I'm actually looking for. And so according to this way of thinking, genre is not just a category of a type of writing. A, a genre is actually an agreement between people. It's a formulation of a relationship. The author is going to give you something intentional, and I, as the reader, am looking to gain something specific. And here's the key thing about under, understanding genre when we come to these texts, and really when we come to any texts. If we were to go to a specific text with an agenda that we wanted to discover, but that agenda, that particular genre that we were looking for, was not the genre, was not the intention of the author, of what the author was intending to give to us, then we have fundamentally violated that relationship. We have not entered into an agreement. I'm coming with a different set of expectations than what the author is intending to bring. I would not go to a gardening book looking for political theory. The political theorist was not intending to give me tips and tricks and advice on how to grow a great garden. I wouldn't go to a mystery book to learn how to cook. And I wouldn't go to a theology book or a spirituality book looking for information on quantum mechanics or evolutionary biology. These are separate categories. They are separate genres. And if I were to attempt to go to that particular writing with an agenda, with a hope of getting something out of that book that was not intended by the genre decided by the author, then that is a breach of genre. And it's a violation of the agreement between the author, whoever wrote the book, and the audience, myself. I hope that makes sense. Genre is not just type, style, characteristics of literary works. Genre, according to this way of thinking, is an agreement. Which means that the person who's writing the gospel according to Luke is attempting to communicate something very specific about the writings. And the way in which we, 
are going to get out of the writings what the author intended is to agree upon what kind of genre is this writing. So let's ask, very simply and very straightforward, what genre are the gospel accounts? Now, there's several possible examples to this. Some people think and believe, and it's taught very widely, that the Bible, the entire thing, is the inspired, inerrant, divine word of God. And the implications and the nuances of all that meaning are very vast, and they include all sorts of different perspectives and philosophies. Uh, but there's something very unique and special about these words that you can't touch them in the same way. You can't interpret them in the same way because of that. There's all these spiritual, there's all sorts of different ways in which people read the Bible in that particular way. I was having a conversation with somebody this week who said they're wrestling with, how do I read the Bible now that I just want to go back to the way that I used to read it, which is going to read my Bible like a soft teddy bear because it gives me so much comfort. So that was another way in which somebody was sharing. I so appreciated uh, their sharing that. Uh, a lot of people read the Bible in a very clairvoyant, prophetic way, which, which means you go to the Bible because you think there's all these secrets that are to be found in it. And so if you dig and if you're uh, thoughtful enough and you're studied enough, you can dig into all these super uh, secrets. And perhaps one of the most popular ways um, in Christian circles, in American religious circles, is to read the Bible according to what you are going to get out of it. So you get your life verse. You get your fill of the day. You got inspired today. And honestly, it's very much me-centric. It's very much about what I get out of it, my spiritual journey, my relationship with God, etc. Now, it's at this particular point I want you to remember. What feeling did you have several minutes ago when I was talking about Jesus, racism, political upheaval, the challenges that we're facing today, and then immediately started telling jokes? What feeling did you have? It is my guess that if received in the way that I intended it, there was some uncertainty, there was a discombobulation, there was a confusion, there was something didn't quite fit. The jokes that I was telling is a different genre from the setup that I was giving. And I immediately jumped and it didn't make sense. And in fact, you tuned in today and you're a part of a church service because you're looking for a particular type of genre. You're looking to be inspired. You're looking to gain some information. You're looking to grow. And yet, if I spend that time just telling jokes, it's like kind of wasting my time. What does that mean? That doesn't fit what was intended. That doesn't fit the agreement. And in fact, many of us actually choose churches based upon that. There is something specific that I'm looking for. And you know what? Church A, Church B, Church C, they just don't give what I'm looking for. So then we find a different church. So that feeling right there is what we want to attend to when we now get into the study of the gospel according to Luke. And what I'd like to suggest to you is that we can actually identify the genre of these gospels, of these gospel accounts. In his book, What Are the Gospels?, Richard Burridge has documented some extensive work on Greco-Roman biographies, ancient Greco-Roman biographies, things like the 12 Caesars by Suetonius or Plutarch's The Lives of Noble People, Philostratus's Lives of the Sophists. 
And what he has suggested is that the previous way of thinking about the gospel accounts, which in previous thinking, and many of us think this still today, is that they are radically unique. They, they fit into a genre all by themselves. What he is going to suggest and argues fairly persuasively that many scholars in the entire New Testament world thinking is now shifting over to is that we can actually answer this question when we do those studies of those ancient biographies that in answer to the question, what genre are the gospel accounts? They are ancient biography and understanding the gospel accounts as ancient biography is going to radically shift how we read these texts, how we study, and therefore what is implied for our lives. Now, I love this idea of ancient biography. We have a bunch of biographies that are published today that are super exciting, like Ron Chernow's, Alexander Hamilton, or Michelle Obama's Becoming, which is much more an autobiography. One of my favorites that I read a while ago was Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson. And Isaacson writes this about him at the very end of the book. Steve Jobs thus became the greatest business executive of our era, the one most certain to be remembered a century from now. History will place him in the pantheon right next to Edison and Ford. More than anyone else of his time, he made products that were completely innovative, combining the power of poetry and processors. With a ferocity that could make working with him as unsettling as it was inspiring, he also built the world's most creative company. And he was able to infuse into its DNA the design sensibilities, perfectionism, and imagination that made it likely to be, even decades from now, the company that thrives best at the intersection of artistry and technology. I love that summary. That kind of biographical sketch invites us to uh, participate in what made Jobs Jobs, what made him so influential, and how has this company Apple become so iconic? We have several Sparkers that work at Apple, and I hear cons consistently how much they love the company, they love the ethic, they love the design thinking, they love the culture, all of that. Uh, so to read a biography helps us to engage and to actually be inspired and entertained. Doris Kearns Goodwin is an incredible biographer of American presidents. She has written extensively about Johnson and Lincoln and Roosevelt, um, and, and they're just incredible reads. In her latest book, Leadership in Turbulent Times, she writes something that I think is extremely apropos to our study of the Gospel of Luke. Listen to what she writes at the very beginning in the foreword to her book. I searched for illuminating details that taken together would provide an intimate understanding of these men, their families, their friends, their colleagues, and the worlds in which they lived. After writing four extensive books devoted to these men, I thought I knew them well before I embarked on this present study of leadership nearly five years ago. But as I observed them through the exclusive lens of leadership, I felt as if I were meeting them anew. There was much to learn as the elusive theme of leadership assumed center stage. As I turned to works of philosophy, literature, business, political science, and comparative studies in addition to history and biography, I found myself engaged in an unexpectedly personal and emotional kind of storytelling. I returned to fundamental questions I had not asked so openly since my days of college and graduate school. And I love this, a new lens old questions, and a retelling of the story. This is exactly what we are attempting to do with the gospel according to Luke. We want a new lens, our, our context, our time, the framework in which we're living. We have old questions. Who are we? What is Jesus about? Is there goodness? Is there hope? Why do bad things happen to good people? 
And we get to retell the story by revisiting these stories. That is why I love understanding the genre of biography in, as the lens and the perspective through which we're going to do this study. But there's two additional pieces that are really critical for us in what we talked about earlier. Burridge writes this in his book, if the genre is the key to a work's interpretation and the genre of the gospels is vios, bios, then the key to their interpretation must be the person of their subject, Jesus of Nazareth. Now that may seem simple, but remember what we talked about before. How do people normally read their Bibles, specifically the Gospels? Do they read them because they are the divine word and we want to get out these secret messages, some sort of clairvoyance and prophetic mystery into the future, or get my particular Bible verse? We do that even through the gospel accounts. If we understand the gospel accounts as ancient biography, however, within this particular context and through this particular lens, everything that we study is going to tell us more about who Jesus is. And Jesus then becomes the center, not just of our faith, but now of our interpretation. Jesus becomes the center of how we read, how we study. When we get to Luke and he says, many have undertaken, and we get to the miracles and the signs and the teachings, when we get to all of that stuff in Luke, we're not trying to discern some sort of secret spiritual mystical thing that exists up there that, you know, that somehow is special to us because we're readers. No, we're now engaged in a discovery. Who is Jesus? What did he do? What do these stories tell us about him? And the second thing that Burridge writes about is that biography had a very specific goal, which is whether or not people should actually consider their lives for their way of living. And this is where Wikipedia actually gets the definition spot on. Ancient biography, or bios, as distinct from modern biography, was a genre of Greek and Roman literature interested in describing the goals, achievements, failures, and character of ancient historical persons, and whether or not they should be imitated. And here's the key thing, why we understand this genre in this particular way. Understanding Jesus as the center and the focus point is the interpretive turning point for our reading and our understanding. And the second piece is that as we read and as we understand, then we ask the question, should this Jesus be imitated, emulated, replicated in our lives? And so no longer can we just, and I want to say that just, no longer can we just read the gospel accounts according to the ways, the old ways in which we've read them. Now we must read them within the new lens of ancient biography to let Jesus be the center, center of our interpretation and our understanding and to ask the question of all of us, is that life worth emulating? Is that kind of life worth imitating? Is that kind of life worth living in this day, in this way? That's the question that's before us. And the reason why that's important for me and for us and for Spark is because that is the very center of our church. We are here not to just create another spiritual experience, an alternative to bad churches, none of that stuff. We're very clear on our existence and our identity. We exist to inspire people to live the way of Jesus. And that central mission is what focuses us on everything that we do, 
how we behave, the decisions that we make, how we present ourselves to the world, how we engage with our social and political issues. It's through the way of Jesus. But to do that, we have to study. We have to dig in. We have to let these biographies speak to us anew. It reminds me of this famous quote by Pastor Omer. I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Uh, many of you have heard that quote before. And Pastor, in fact, Pastor Omer's quote is so famous, even it's misattributed frequently to Gandhi as the one who actually said it. But it really wasn't Gandhi. And it really wasn't actually Pastor Omer. I'm giving him a hard time for all the time he, he throws that in. And I'm going back to the genre of joke within the context of his sermon. It was actually attributed, uh, most importantly, to Steve Jobs, but only kinda. And I'd like to end our time with actually some words from the biography of Steve. In 1968, Life magazine published this image, this picture, uh, the starving children of the Biafra War. There's a story that Isaacson tells in the biography where Steve is having a conversation with his pastor about, does God know everything? Like really everything? Uh, Isaacson writes this. Jobs then pulled out the life cover and asked, well, does God know about this and what's going to happen to those children? The pastor replied, Steve, I know you don't understand, but yes, God knows about that. Jobs announced that he didn't want to have anything to do with worshiping such a God, and he never went back to church. He did, however, spend years studying and trying to practice the tenets of Zen Buddhism. Reflecting years later on his spiritual feelings, he said that religion was at its best when it emphasized spiritual experiences rather than received dogma. And then he says this, The juice goes out of Christianity when it becomes too based on faith, rather than on living like Jesus or seeing the world as Jesus saw it. From a modern biography of Steve Jobs to an ancient biography written by Luke about the person of Jesus, who chose the genre of ancient biography so that we could enter into an appropriate agreement and a relationship that Luke is going to tell us about this Jesus and we are going to read his writings to seek out, understand, learn more, discover deeper who this Jesus was, who this Jesus is, and to ask the question, how and if we should emulate, imitate, and become and live out the way of Jesus. And understanding these texts specifically Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as ancient biography, compels us to dig in this way into our engagement and study and our journey together as followers of Jesus. The way that Luke writes it, many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. I too, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. A beautiful preface to the biography that is to come, 
that will tell us more and more about who this Jesus is and what Luke wanted and intended us to know about this Jesus. Our invitation, my friends, is that we would journey together with Jesus as the key to our interpretation and understanding of the Gospels. Not us, not some sort of spiritual principle. Jesus Jesus is the interpretive key. Let us consider carefully is Jesus worth imitating and emulating and following? And according to Job's Let us put the juice back into Christianity by living like Jesus and seeing the world as Jesus saw it. And the way in which we can do that, the compelling way in which we need to do that, is to agree with Luke that this is an ancient biography. To agree with Luke that we are using Jesus as our key interpretive lens. To agree with Luke that we, by engaging in this text, should be compelled once again to consider, is this Jesus worth following? That, my friends, is the invitation. That is why we are studying the gospel according to Luke. And that is the invitation to all of you on this journey. And we hope that you join us. As we enter into a time of communion, we are entering into a sacrament that commemorates a very specific element of Jesus's life and the teachings found in these gospel accounts, namely the death, burial, and resurrection. They commemorate this because they too are key turning points in the interpretive lens that we use to understand who Jesus was, how he acted, should he be emulated. What's the turning point? Into the deepest darkness, into the deepest injustice, Jesus goes, suffers at the hands of oppression, suffers and dies an excruciating death, and rises again victorious on the other side to claim evil will not win, Darkness will not win. Oppression and injustice will not win. But resurrection will win. The power of God to bring new life out of the dead will win. So my friends, as we take communion together, as we commemorate this moment, I invite you to consider that Jesus once again and to steady and ready our hearts to receive. Okay, as we enter into this series, And as we learn more about who Jesus is, who Jesus was, and whether or not we should follow him, I'm preparing my hearts to listen, to receive, to enter in as Doris Kearns Goodwin with the new lens, old questions, and a new retelling of the story. So we hope that you engage in that way. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. My friends, the body and the blood of Christ, which is broken and poured out for you, and all of you, every single one of you, is welcome at this table.